I would ask you to open in your Bibles to the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 10. And perhaps you recall a couple weeks back I did put up on the, the board the basic outline of the um, section of 9 to 11 that Paul begins his matter of the unbelief of Israel by going back into the history going back into God's promises and what they were, that we could have a true understanding of what those promises entailed, so that we would know that uh, God's not been unfaithful to his word. His word has not failed. Um, what's happened to Israel was something that happened really in every generation, where uh, hearing of the word was not mixed with faith, where um, those who were seemingly part of the election of God actually uh, were not. It wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac, it wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. Um, God had his plan and purposes that uh, uh, fell out in a way that um, at no point can anybody say that God gave a promise he did not fulfill. And uh, that's Paul's understanding and Paul wants us to be clear uh, that God's word has not failed with respect to this matter of Israel's unbelief. And then in chapter 10, there's a diagnosis of the present situation. Paul's diagnosis of Israel's present unbelief. In his day, why did so few Jews come to faith? Why did so few who were the natural heirs of the promise uh, reject the promise and not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And so simply stated, he tells us that they did not pursue righteousness in the right way. They were ignorant of God's righteousness and they sought to establish their own. And in so doing, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. And Paul makes that great declaration in the words of verse um, 4, for Christ is the end of the law. And um, again, the word telos, could, it could mean end, but the law is not done with, at least in terms of its pertinence, its uh, its uh, significance in the hands of the Redeemer. But he is the perhaps the goal of the law, the focus of the law. He is the meaning of the law. As Jesus showed them from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It may be that that's the reality that Paul is addressing when he uses the word that Christ is the telos or the end or the, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes and then what Paul does is they, he, he gives this slew of Old Testament quotations. I was going to count them up and I didn't do it, but there's just lots of them. In fact, there's some of them that I missed last week that I didn't even know were there, but actually they are. And um, it seems to me that we need to, we need to be careful in our reading of Paul, uh, particularly in the conjunctions that he uses to see the transitions of where he is going. Um, it's funny, he begins with the statement in um, Leviticus 18 about, and he says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Does that seem like a, an unusual statement for the Apostle Paul to make that Moses would have written about the righteousness that is based on the law? I mean, it doesn't seem to me Paul believes there is such a thing as a righteousness that's based on the law. That through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That uh, the law is not given to make us righteous. Uh, righteousness comes by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And it may well be what Paul's doing is he's arguing just on the basis of what the Jew Jews were thinking. And he says, okay, now, if you want a righteousness based on the law, let's see what Moses would say about such a thing. Now, what Moses would say about such a thing is, you're locked in to the totality of the law and all of its parts. And just based upon having the law as a basis for righteousness, a righteousness that's based on the law, um, the law is very unforgiving. The law doesn't say you're forgiven. The law says you're guilty. Now, of course, the ceremonial law brings in sacrifices and, I guess, the possibility of finding forgiveness through the offerings that were brought in anticipation of Christ's uh, once-for-all offering at the end of the age. But 
Um, I think Paul's doing, he's basing his statements upon, if you reason through this matter from the vantage point of what the Jews think about the law, a righteousness based on the law, it's rather an impossible way to get right with God. It's really nothing that can ever be achieved. Law cannot save us. Law cannot bring us to righteousness. Because we fail. We fail over and over and over again. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul contrasts um, what Moses hypothetically would say about the righteousness of the law with something that Moses says, and he says positively, but the righteousness based on the law, uh, based on faith, says. And he quotes Moses again. And he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And um, I missed something completely last week that I really should have picked up on. But you go back to Exodus chapter 30 and this uh, matter of um, do not, I'm sorry, who will ascend into heaven uh, bringing the law down, who will go over the seas to bring the law to us. We're not required to do that. We're not required to engage in some quest for the law across the seas, up into the heavens, God has given the law near to us so that we might do it. And, um, but there's nothing in the passage in Deuteronomy 30 that says, do not say in your heart. It's not there. What Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. But that's not found in the passage in Deuteronomy 30. But it is found elsewhere. You know it's found? It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And so let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 9. This matter of do not say in your heart is found in Deuteronomy 9. And it's found in the midst of a, a number of statements that is made in the early chapters of the book of Deuteronomy in which the people of Israel are told not to think that they are righteous because this or that or the next thing or that God loves them, or God's given them these gifts, or God's given them this manifestation of his goodness and grace because they are worthy, and they are love, lovable, and all, all of these matters are their greatest in all the nations, so God's chosen you. No, no. It's not based on any of those things. And here in chapter 9 and verse 4, um, let's just go back to verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know. That was the stumbling block, of course, in Numbers. Well, they didn't want to go into the land. God says, hey, you can encounter some, you know, the same things that the spies did. And you, 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 you just to know that... Uh, um, the people who said who can stand before the sons of Anak know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is Yahweh your God he will destroy them he will subdue them before you so that you will drive them out and make them perish quickly as Yahweh has promised you okay God's going to go before us God's going to destroy our enemies we're going to take the land and so that must mean we're a rather special people we're notable, we're, we're better than the rest, we're cut above all the other nations of the earth. And that's exactly what this statement about, don't, don't, don't speak such, in such ways in your heart. Do not say in your heart how special I am, or what a good boy I am, or what a great nation we are. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. <laughs> Don't even come close to having that thought in your mind, in your heart. Be clear of any sense of your own worth, your merit, your own righteousness is comprising the reason that God has brought you in to possess the land. This is a matter of pure grace. This is a matter of pure goodness on the part of God towards you and you're to rejoice in his goodness not in your goodness his provision not in your worthiness to receive the provision 
He says, whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations, of anything, you want to get anything in the way of who deserves what? Well, the wickedness of the nations deserves that they would be driven out from the land. But verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. Because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is thrusting out and driving out before you. And he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. So even then, it's nothing to do with you. God gave commitment. God gave covenant. God gave oath. God gave promise to your fathers. And he's fulfilling the word of his commitment and his promise. And it's not because you are worthy to be this nation receiving such blessings and such benefits. You think that has something to do with the way in which we see ourselves before God? We see how righteousness is attained, that it's not a matter of our righteousness that we establish on our own. No, it's a righteousness by faith. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him for righteousness. God entered into covenant with him. And you're receiving the benefits of a promise made to a believing man who you call your father. And if Abraham was your father, you do the works of Abraham. You do the works of faith that Abraham did. You'd believe and you trust, and you'd come to righteousness the way Abraham did, believing the words and promises of God. And so right before Paul will speak of the way in which God has given us his words, not distant from us, but near to us, in our mouth and in our heart, he says, don't think in this wicked way that it's something to do with you, your righteousness or your goodness. Do not say in your heart, and so that's where he begins. Well, how do how does people who think that they can be, get righteous think it can come to them? Well, I'll do something extraordinary. I'll do some great work of uh, daring do, some great work that everybody will say, "Wow, what a what a, what a hero!" We'll be our own saviors. We'll be our own heroes. We'll ascend into heaven. We'll bring God's law down to men. No, you, you don't need to do that. God's already done it. You know, you're not going to you're not going to best God. You're not going to uh, be superior to God in the things that you think you're going to provide. He's already made the provision. Um, so don't say in your heart we're going to go into heaven or across the sea. Um, God has come to you as a nation, not righteous in yourself. You're stubborn people. You're disobedient people. You're sinful people, you're failing people. Um, you got nothing of your own to boast in. Whatever you get, God gives in grace. Um, and so he condescends to you. He draws near to you. And he draws near to you with a word that is not distant and far away. And you've got to do something to attain it or to achieve it. Again, it's the grace of God that is highlighted, just like it's highlighted in the gospel. And the problem with Israel is they're bent upon a pursuit of self-salvation in which they could have grounds for boasting in the presence of God. God's method of grace calls upon us to confess what he has done, to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, to believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. The, the Jews want to bypass the throne rights of, of Jesus, to go into heaven and attain his salvation, which is to bring him down from his lordship, will be the lords of our own destiny, will be the master of our own fate. And they want to just ignore the fact that it's Jesus who died and is risen from the dead. We'll make our own descent into the abyss. We'll, through our sufferings, through our weathering the storms of life, we'll provide for ourselves a basis for righteousness, simply negating what Christ has done. I think that's the point of what Paul's saying. In essence, what this is doing is it's saying Christ never needed to come, never needed to die, never needed to be raised from the dead, never needed to be ascended into the heavens, never needed to sit in as Lord of all. We're the ones who'll do it all for him. You see, the parallel that I think is there, and Israel is saying, Moses is saying to Israel, you don't need to do what God's done. Like go across the sea and get his word. Or go into heaven and get his word. You don't need to do that. You need to receive what he's given. You're not going to attain righteousness by your own stuff. And I think that's what the new covenant is all about as well. Is we don't achieve it by ourselves or on our own. We don't ascend into heaven to 
to sit upon the throne of, of the universe. We, we don't go down into the abyss to suffer for the sin. No, no. Christ is done. God has sent Jesus to do all. And he's calls upon us to believe. And so righteousness is not a matter of self-attainment. It's a matter of believing in the attainment of God. Not our achievement, but his achievement received by faith. And so Paul's diagnosed the problem. The, the Israel has, is, is upon a quest of self-salvation. Self-righteousness is the heart of their quest. And um, it's, it's going to fail. It can't work. It can't get you to God. It can't get you to the forgiveness of sins. It can't bring you to the salvation of God, which is why Paul's heart is in anguish over their unbelief. That he would, um, his prayer to God is that they would be saved because in this condition they're not saved. They're far from righteousness. They're far from God. Now having then diagnosed the problem of their quest for self-righteousness, Paul then seems to me moves on to address the necessity of this gospel that God has given and made available to all that it needs to be spread far and wide. And the key point of it is that in the quotation he gives in Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 when um, he says there's no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Again, it's not something we gain for ourselves. It's something God gives. It's his riches that he bestows upon all who call on him. And then he quotes Joel 2, in verse 23, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a passage that's given in the context of the Holy Spirit being given to all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. At the end of that passage in chapter 2, he says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord from the nations, all the flesh of, 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 of humanity, upon whom the Spirit comes and whom the Spirit indwells, who as a result of the Spirit's work come to faith and they come to believe and in faith they call upon the name of the Lord and so that's a matter not just for Jews that's a matter for all flesh that's a matter for all the nations and so Paul then raises the question falling out of Joel 2 which envisions more than just Israel it envisions all everyone everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord how then will they who are the they well Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord from all flesh, all the nations of the earth. So we're moving into not a restricted view of Israel's unbelief, but now the gospel's universality. That the gospel's gone to the ends of the world and must go to the ends of the world. And so Paul then gives a series of four questions about this whole matter of the gospel extending beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentile nations. Because again, in chapter 11, here's the problem of Israel's unbelief versus Gentile faith. And how that all works together in one congregation. And so he's setting it up again for the future hope in chapter 11. Um, the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth and it can't be restricted. It can't just stay within the borders of the nation of Israel. That might have been what the Jews desired, but that cannot ever be. And so Paul asks these questions. Um, and the light of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, how then will they call on him? That's what Joel's expecting, right? He's expecting everyone of all flesh to call upon the name of the Lord. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And there needs to be faith to call upon him. You don't go to the Gentiles and say, well, we're going to give you a law to do. And once you do the law, then you can call upon the name of the Lord. No. The Spirit comes upon all flesh, and all who believe call upon the name of the Lord, and they must uh, believe to call upon his name. And then he says the second question is, uh, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? If we don't get beyond the borders of the Israel, nation of Israel, you know, again, the Jews are kind of upset that Gentiles are being saved, they're being brought into the, the church, into a new covenant uh, with God through Christ, and uh, they think that's this is appalling, having Gentiles' dogs doing this. Um, but they must. 
They must. God's word is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They must uh, believe to call on his name if Joel uh, 2 is going to be fulfilled. And then they must hear if they're going to believe. I have a little power shortage here. <laughs> okay. Then how are they to hear without someone preaching? There needs to be a preacher sent, like Paul been going to the Gentile nations with the message of the gospel. That may be a little bit autobiographical. Um, he's preaching to the Gentiles. And um, how are they to preach unless they're sent? And um, there's a number of things here that needs to be underscored. In what Paul's saying in these four questions. And um, let me just tell you what I think they are. I think first of all Paul's telling us that this matter of the bringing of the gospel to the nations is a church activity. They have to be sent. Someone has to send them. And it doesn't seem like they're to be self-sent. They're to be sent. The church is to raise up capable preachers to recognize them, to commission them, to send them forth. People are not to be self-appointed and self-designated. I was talking at breakfast yesterday morning about someone I spoke with about the gospel one time who, after I endeavored to explain all the misconceptions he had about Christianity, he said, well, why did I first hear from you? I mean, I, all these people tell me all this stuff that now you're telling me is just not right. And I said, well, this is the problem of the world in which we live. People go out to, you know, because they, they want to bring people in, uh, to, uh, but the problem is they're not getting the gospel clear. And we need first to be clear about what this gospel is and be capable to communicate it truly and accurately. And that just doesn't happen by the fact that you have a lot of zeal in your heart and you'd like to see people come to faith. You know, there's lots of people that want to see people come to faith. Think of that poor kid a few years ago that was warned again and again and again. There's an island he wanted to go to, to reach people, to get these people saved that have never heard the gospel. And they're saying, these people are violent. These people will kill you as soon as they see you. And he was just determined on the stuff of his own commission. No one sent him. No one called him. No one told him to do it. It was an ambition of his own heart, for whatever reasons he had. And he got killed. He got killed. What a, what a terrible waste of life. Somebody who was not willing to be sent, who was willing to send himself to do a mission of his own design and desire, wouldn't be subject to anybody else. You know, we have to learn to be subject to others. And if we're going to be able to do other people good, well, we have to be, have good give, done to us. We have to be well instructed. <laughs> so that's a church activity preachers need to be capable they need to be recognized and then they need to be sent forth not to be just self-designated missionaries and evangelists and then the other thing or the second thing is that those who are sent out by the church apparently as this passage would tell us their main work is the work of preaching not the practice of other things. Now, the nations need educators. The nations need doctors. The nations need people who you know, help them build wells, ensure that they have drinkable water, build houses, and, and all the rest. But the church supplies preachers. <laughs> the church seeks to raise up preachers. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. That's our distinctive work. It's not that we despise the work that everyone else does. It's just a specific work that the church is called to do, the work of Christian missions, is a work of proclamation. It's a work of church planting. It's a work of gospel communication to bring the message of Christ to the nations. All these other things, these auxiliary things, yeah, they're, they're worthy of our prayers. They're worthy of our support. I'm not despising it. I'm not saying people shouldn't be involved in other things. I'm just saying we need to be more concerned for the church as church to see a generation of preachers raised up to go forth with the message of Christ to the nations. To see, you know, 
not just one family of Jabellos in New Guinea, but in multiple. I know there are multiple people doing this similar work in the same work, but you know, to pray certainly that that is the work that continues to go forth, of people settling among different people groups to uh, preach to them and to teach them uh, the Word of God. And then, um, and, and then it, 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 it's the emphasis of the passage that those who go forth from the church who are called and they're sent and who preach, that what they preach is not their clever opinions, but they're to be preaching Christ. They're to be preaching Christ as Lord. Christ is risen from the dead. That's the essence of saving faith. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And the interesting thing that the Apostle says, and it's not present in all the translations, is that and let me just look at the ESV. Uh, I didn't notice whether it is um, how it is here. Um, yeah, th- this is not really right, the ESV. Uh, because the ESV translates it, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And that's uh, something they put in, the little uh, I guess preposition of whom, of whom they've never heard. But it's in the original, clear that Paul's saying that how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? They need to hear him. Him who they've never heard. And, you know, you might think you could put an oven there if this was the only passage addressing this issue. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Paul said to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, and let me turn there, I'm just not getting it into my head for the moment. But in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, He came and preached peace. In Ephesians 2 and verse 16, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, well, 16, He might reconcile us, that is Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body, having killed the hostility. Between Jew and Gentile, it's through the blood of the cross, he's accomplished this work, he's abolished the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances. And then it's verse 17, it says, and he who did all this, he who accomplished all this, he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. It wasn't just me. Jesus came through his apostles and we hear his voice. He preaches. How should they hear him? We need to hear him. And so, it's only as we preach him that people hear him. It's only as we faithfully convey his words that people hear his voice. And so this is a church work. This is a work of capable, sent preachers who have preaching as their main work and have preaching Christ as their great theme. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 52 and verse 7. And he quotes 52 and verse 7 because it's one of those passages in Isaiah that mentions the gospel speaks of the gospel uses a a Hebrew word that in the Greek translation is I believe is translated euangelion which is the word for gospel and you go back to Isaiah 52 in the passage where that's found you get something of the flavor of what euangelion mean or meant or what this matter of gospel meant in Isaiah 52 Now let's back up to verse 3. For thus says Yahweh, you are sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt, the sojourner, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what I have what what I what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares Yahweh, and continually all the day. 
my name is despised. And so God's people have been taken into captivity. God's people have been oppressed. God's people have been defeated in warfares and in conflicts. And then the Lord says at the end of verse 6, Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. Here I am. The living God, the I am, now speaks. And what does he speak? Well, he speaks a message where the defeat of Israel at the hand of their enemies has been overturned. God has entered in with a victory. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's the picture of a conflict that's going on in a far and distant land where the armies of Israel or Judah are waging a battle. They're waging a warfare. Of course, they're not the ones that are waging it. It's the Lord who's waging it on behalf of his people. The Lord is going to bring back, bring a victory. He's going to bring a triumph. He's going to overturn their adversaries and he's going to bring them back to the place of blessedness, peace, shalom, good news of happiness. And you know what often would happen when a victory had been won in a war is that messengers would be sent from the battlefield and they would come into the city and they would declare the good news. We have won a great triumph. And that one who announces such a thing is an evangelist. <laughs> He's proclaiming good news. He's bringing good news from the front. We've won the triumph. We've won the victory. Our armies have been successful. We have triumphed. And that's the, 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 the point of it. Is We go to declare a victory, a triumph of God over all of his adversaries. That Christ reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is Lord of all. He has been raised from the dead. We proclaim what God has done to bring about salvation. And we say to Zion, your God reigns. Yahweh reigns. His kingdom has come in the person of his Son. And so, you know, Paul says the, the reality of the evangelist who comes with that evangel, who comes with that message, um, it's as it is written. How beautiful, how absolutely beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. We'll get into the normal way we see feet, but <laughs> it's the feet of the person who's coming to proclaim the victory. But then Paul goes back to Israel. He's talked about the nations. He's talked about how the message of the gospel is to go to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Because how shall they call on his name if they don't believe? And how will they believe if they've not heard? And how will they hear without the preacher? And how will they preach without being sent? The evangelists have to go. The message has to be proclaimed. For people from every place to believe upon the name of the Lord as Joel anticipated. But now he's going back to Israel at the words of verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, you know, come to think of it, this may not yet be all the way going back to Israel, but I think Paul's edge in there. Paul's edge in there. Um, Israel's, Israel's unbelief it was an argument that Jews were making that must mean the gospel can't really be true. And what Paul's saying, and what John also says in the Gospel of John in chapter 12, is that far from Jewish unbelief being something unanticipated in the Old Testament, is exactly what was anticipated in the Old Testament. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, and again, 52, where you have the quotation about the beautiful feet. Uh, publishing peace that leads into 53 where the first words of chapter 53 are these words Lord who has believed what he's heard from us so the preachers have gone they're preaching God's victory they're preaching the triumph of God's salvation and as they go and they bring, bring their report as they come and they bring their message people are saying who, what, where, why, huh we didn't even know we were at war <laughs> who's believed it who's taken our message seriously 
We're saying God has intervened in the history of the nations. God has intervened in the sending of his son. And the people who are listening to us are saying, whoa, we, we don't get it. We don't believe it. They don't believe it. And Isaiah anticipates that would be the case. Because when he asked the question, who has believed our report, the answer assumed, it's a rhetorical question, the assumed answer is not many. Not many. That's the, the tragedy of it. That God's done this great salvation and people turn it here. People turn away from it and they meet the good news and the beauty of it with hard hearts. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? Yet they need to hear from us because faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. They need to hear the message of Christ. Even though it's met with unbelief, there will be faith that others will meet the message with. They will come to faith. And so that's our confidence. It's not that everyone's going to come to faith. It's not that everyone's going to believe. But it's that God's going to call out a people for himself through the proclamation of the message. And hence we go. Hence we send. Hence we proclaim. Hence people hear the voice of Christ and come to faith through the hearing of the word of Christ. Now I believe it's where in verse 18 he does go back to Israel. But I ask, have they not heard? Uh, you might say about the nations of the earth, lots of them didn't hear Paul's time of writing Romans. He can speak of a circuit he made from Jerusalem to Illyricum, going from the Holy Land all the way to the Balkans. Um, quite an ambitious plan and project that he achieved, but yet multitudes of nations had not heard the gospel. But it's Israel that he, again he's concerned about. This is all about Israel. This is all about Israel and Israel's relationship to the Gentiles who have heard and have believed. I ask, have they not heard? And Paul's answer is indeed they have. Israel has, has heard the message. They've heard the gospel. And the way that they've heard the gospel is interesting. He quotes Psalm 19. Which, you know, again, to me is kind of crazy. We're, we're preaching through Psalm 19. And all the tendency we've had in expounding Psalm 19, I think through the centuries, the Christian church, is to see the first part of Psalm 19 as a message that goes forth to the nations. It's the general revelation that all I see. And of course, that's, that's not, not there in Psalm 19, but it's not the focus of Psalm 19. Again, Psalm 19 is part of the Psalter, is part of the hymnal of the synagogue and of the temple. It's God's people who declare, the heavens have declared the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. We are the ones who delight in the revelation God's given of himself in the world. We are the ones who in Psalm, I think it's 111 or 113, let me just turn you there. You know, we might say, well, you know, God's bore witness of himself in the heavens. And that's not untrue. You know, that, is, that is true. Is that some kind of pre-evangelism we can bring to the nations? Sure. I won't stop anybody from doing that. But my point is that the, the fullness of the, 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 the revelation God has given of himself in creation is really for the benefit of those that believe. Look at what it says in verse three, uh, verse 2 of Psalm 111. Um, again, look at the context. Praise Yahweh. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. This is worship that's in the midst of God's people. Great are the works of Yahweh, studied by all who delight in them. Now, God, I have no doubt, has given witness of himself to the peoples of the world. But how many of the peoples of the world turn around and say, I want to study this. I want to see 
This great revelation that God has given that I might worship him. Paul says that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave him thanks, and they started to worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. The real benefit of this general revelation that we talk about is for God's people to magnify the God who has made himself known in all of the works of his hands. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. When I see the moon and the stars that you have ordained, when I consider them, and the word there is really when I study them, when I examine them, when I scan them, when I pour over the reality, not only of his word, but of his works. Not just what scripture says, but what the world tells me about the God who made the world. I say, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's for the benefit of those who have faith. That they can really benefit from and profit from the reality of God's works of creation. And so that's the reason God has given his words to Israel. And God has declared his works to Israel. And Israel has received the reality that they are not there without excuse because God's voice has gone out to all the earth and they have it in their own scriptures to read about it and to know about it it testifies of them their, their words to the ends of the earth but I ask did Israel understand? again Israel's the focus Israel didn't understand this Israel didn't get it Israel didn't get the fact that God has declared his glory in creation that we would be humbled before him we would say in and of ourselves, we don't have the answers to the meaning of life. We don't get it. We see our smallness in the midst of the immensity of the universe. And we see our own, in, uh, our own disobedience, even in terms of how God has made himself known in, cre- in creation. In Tauri, yes, but in creation also. And, and so Paul's senses, they've been given access, again, to the Revelation that God's given himself that's gone to the ends of the world. They've been given access to the words of God that are in the Torah, the fullness of Psalm 19, given testimony to both. He says, but I ask, did Israel understand? The answer is no. Isaiah's complaint in Isaiah chapter 1, my people do not understand. My people do not not consider. He says, the ox knows his master's crib. The donkey knows the one that feeds it, but my people did not know. My people do not consider. And then Paul ends this whole discussion about Israel's unbelief with material from the the book of Deuteronomy called the Song of Moses, and then a quote from Isaiah, both of which lead us into chapter 11, not only declaring the fact that Israel's unbelief is, should be no surprise to us, but also that the unbelief of the nations, as it's presented in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, opens up an avenue of hope for the future. That's where he's going with this, so I'll let you know that. This, what he's going to do in these two quotations, he's not only going to cement the notion that the Old Testament does testify to Israel's unbelief. We shouldn't be surprised about it. But also we should be hopeful. Because these Old Testament passages do open up a pathway into the future that he's going to open up more in the 11th chapter. But let's look at them. The first one is a quotation from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The quotation in Romans is, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. God says, I'm going to stir up you to jealousy. I'm going to stir you up to anger. And it's interesting how that comes about. Anybody know how that comes about? Why does God say that? Why does God use those words? I'm going to stir you up to jealousy. I'm going to make you angry. It's because the nation made him angry. The nation stirred him up to jealousy. I'm a jealous God. Israel was his people. They were worshiping idols. And God says, I'm going to turn the tables on this. You stirred me up to jealousy, stirred me up to anger. I'm going to stir you up to jealousy. And I'm going to make you angry. And again, for the purposes of bringing the nation back to him. 
the Song of Moses really deals with the way in which the nation at the borders of the Jordan and the plains of Moab this is their history written beforehand this is what's going to happen when they enter into the land he calls upon them to give ear to his instruction but having mentioned that their God is the perfect rock he's the just in all his ways he's a God of faithfulness without iniquity in verse 4 verse 5 contrasts the God of Israel with the performance of Israel, the lives they've lived before him, they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they're blemished, they're a crooked and a twisted generation. Do you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? He was gracious to you goes on to speak of how in verse 10 he found him he found Israel in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him, he cared for him he kept him as the apple of his eye look at all those things God did for them found them, encircled them cared for them, kept them as the apple of his eye goes on to speak of how he guided them in verse 12 he made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled them with honey out of the, out of the rock. Um, he provided for them. He blessed them with the produce of the field. He had verse 15, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, grew sleek and stout, forsook the God who made them, and scoffed at the rock of their salvation, and stirred him up to jealousy. Stirred him up to jealousy with foreign gods. Verse 21, they made me jealous with what is no God. They provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous. With those who are no people, I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. I will do the thing that this proud people thought would never be done. I will reject them and I will bring in a nation that brings forth the fruits of a relationship of salvation with me. I will do it for the very purpose of making them jealous, provoking them to anger. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 65 in verse 2. But you've got to read it in the context of verses 1 and 2. Turn to Isaiah 65. And again, this provides the foundation of what we find in, verse, in chapter 11. The hope of Israel's restoration is going to be brought about by the fact that God's going to make them jealous. God's going to make them angry by the fact that they are in fact rejected and the fact that another people have come to the blessings that were meant for them that should be theirs and they've rejected it by their unbelief. God says in Isaiah 65 and verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those that did not seek me, meaning the Gentile nations. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. You see how Paul sees the situation? He sees the situation that, yes, the Jews are not believing. Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. They're believing the gospel. They're coming to faith. They've become part of the church. This is being fulfilled. The very thing that Isaiah 65 talks about. I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The Gentile nations are being brought in. But Israel's not forgotten. Israel's not forgotten. As he concludes in chapter 10, but of Israel, he says, there's still a pertinent word to Israel. There's still a future for Israel. Of Israel, he says, all, what we read in Isaiah, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. <coughs> so again, the fault's not God's. The fault's not his words. The fault's not his promises. The fault is their unbelief. God is willing, but they are not. 
God has his hand stretched out. Come to me. Come to me. Trust in me. Return to the God of your fathers. Return to the promises I gave to the nation. That they remain, at least at this point, a disobedient and a contrary people. But that doesn't mean God pulls his, his arms back. All day long, I've held out my hands to disobedient and a contrary people. What a great God we serve. What great mercy. He holds, up, holds forth. He continues to hold forth. And we'll read of how this very posture of God hand stretched forth to a disobedient and a contrary people will ultimately issue in the saving purposes of God fulfilled as we look at what Paul tells us is the future hope of the nation and the nations through the power of the gospel. Our time is gone. Anybody have questions before? Yes, Jan, please. They preach Christ. The What's that? The that yes, because the, how shall they hear him? Yeah. So there has to be the preaching of Christ if they would hear him. And Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Any other questions or comments? Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, once again, we are grateful to you for your goodness and giving us your word. Though, Lord, we know there's many points of scripture that are difficult and they seem so very complicated. We're thankful for the insights you are pleased to give. And we pray that above everything else, we would see your goodness what you've made known of yourself, that we see clearly that you are a God who designs the well-being of your creatures. You design to have people come to faith, to believe in the message of the gospel. You design your church that the work of preaching would go forth, not just within our meetings, but to the ends of the earth. And we do pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, that you would send forth laborers, that our own church might have the, the privilege of perhaps in coming years to see people going from our own assembly to proclaim the message of Christ to other, other lands and other peoples in other places. Again, we're thankful that your arms are, your hands are extended in, in mercy to the nations that, that uh, they would come to you, that they would receive the blessings of this salvation. They would hear the message of the triumph of the Lamb and bow the knee to his obedience and to his allegiance. So we pray that you'd hear our prayers, you'd bless your people, bless us as we have a time of refreshment, bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.